Hi, I'm Christopher Young. I'm here with Kaya. The show is All Access, and we're probably going to be talking about the score I just finished doing for a film that is opening today called Pet Cemetery. Plus, I suspect some other horror scores I may have done over the years. I'm looking forward to doing this. Thanks for having me on board. This is uh, fun. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for having me at your studio. It's so great to finally sit down with you. I've wanted me to do this for a long time, so I really appreciate your time for, for chatting Thank you, tonight. Kaya. So, That's great. You, as you mentioned, I'm, I think, number 451. Yeah, somewhere up the there. composers that you've interviewed. I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here with you. So honored to have you here. I mean, I grew up listening to your music, so it's been... I don't want to make you feel old or anything, but it just, it's just nice to talk to you and, thank you. Kind of, and thank you. pick your brain for a little bit. So to start, I would love to kind of... Um, Kind of know your background and going back to your to growing up. When when what was your childhood like and when did uh, music sort of kind of enter it and at what part of your life did music come in and at what point did you set on the path to become a composer? Well, I, I you know I haven't really talked with a tremendous amount of composers about this, but my suspicion is in each of our cases, uh, music was always in our heads. You know, from the moment we were born. I, I bet you each and every one of us had something dancing around in there that had to do with pitches and, and whatnot. Mm. So when did music enter my life? I honestly can't remember the day that it did. <laughs> I can just never remember a day in my life when it wasn't in my head. Um, but I certainly can say for sure that um, right from the get-go uh, I was... Uh, Singing in, I went to, I was an Episcopalian, I'm Episcopalian, and I used to uh, sing in the choir even when I was pretty young. Mm. Um, and I adored that music, and that was the first sort of, uh, I guess, professional experience I had, you know, being a part of a team of music makers. Interesting, back in those days, actually, if you were a member of the men's or boys' men's choir, you got paid to do it. Music was something that was so foreign to my family. My dad was a lawyer. My dad's dad was a lawyer. My dad's dad's dad <laughs> was a lawyer. I have two brothers. Neither of them turned out to be lawyers, but my dad sure was hoping that one of us <laughs> would become a lawyer. So when, and we all were love music lovers. Mm. Uh, and all of us, interestingly, started off behind the drums. Oh, wow. We were all drummers, and at one time, I think there were three of us playing drums in the house. Uh, Your I'm poor parents. Who, what's that? Your poor parents with all the drummers. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And uh, but I'm the one who stayed with the the drums. You know, uh, I do have a memory, sort of a memory. I can't remember the specific occasion of the Beatles playing on the Ed Sullivan Show, oh. but that sort of betrays my age here. I was very, very young. I can't really remember the show at all. All I can remember feeling, the feeling of that happening, and the feeling of seeing the Beatles on that mm -hmm. show. If you can imagine, I mean, it's impossible for someone who wasn't around when that happened. Popular music at that time was really pretty tame, you yeah. know. Elvis Presley was about as out as it got, Chuck Berry, you know. Um, and so when the Beatles hit the scene, uh, Overnight, I remember going to school the following morning, and every single person at school had, had changed. Those who changed the most because of it 
had music in them and could appreciate it in a different way. Yeah. So I remember from that moment on, uh, you know, that world was the world I had to be a part of. Of course, I was I was a drummer already. Yeah. I was already yeah. playing drums. I'm, I don't know, it's been five or something like that. And I remember uh, thinking that, uh, you know, God, I was pretty, pretty pretty pissed at God for not making me Ringo Starr, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, because who wouldn't want to be Ringo Starr, you know? Yeah. In, in the back there, you know, <laughs> you know, shaking his head and the girl's going berserk. <laughs> You know. The girls always go for the drummers, it's true. What's that? The girls go for the drummers. Well, the girls, yeah, they go for the singers, they go for the guitarists. Drummers, drummers are it. probably third in line, or maybe second in line. But the basses, forget that. The keyboardists, not really. But yeah, drummers were always kind of hip. Um, and so I didn't, f I, I was lousy on the sports field. Totally had, an, I still don't have an athletic nerve in my body. Right. Um, I did not do well in school academically. Um, it's, I think, probably because I was so desperately seeking affection. You know, I was, I was a goofball. I would do yeah. anything I could to get people's attention. And so I got in a lot of trouble. I was always in detention. Uh, but I suppose the only time in which I got taken seriously was when I was sitting behind the drum set. Mm. And I noticed immediately that the girls that I wanted to, whose attention I wanted to get, whereas they would have nothing to do with me during the majority of the, of the year, the moment I sat behind the set, then there was, I got some attention. So that was a good feeling. So in answer to your question, music um, really has never, ever not been in me as far as I can remember. There's not a day that's gone by where it hasn't been in my head, even though there have been months where I've wished I could rip it out and be done with it. <laughs> it just won't go. There's no way it's going to go. And I know it drove my parents crazy. They desperately wanted me not to pursue music for the longest time, and then they sort of threw their hands up in the air and said, well, I guess this is not going to change. And you know. You know, I, I, I understand why it baffled them and why yeah. they were worried, you know, well, how do you make money writing music or drumming? First of all, do you want to be a drummer? Forget that. And then I got into writing and, um, and, uh. Writing music or writing? What's uh, that? Writing music? Writing music. Okay. And that happened because actually, um, one summer, my freshman year at college, I did a summer session at Berkeley School of Music. And I studied drums. I was still drumming with um, a hero of mine. His name was Alan Dawson, and he played with Dave Brubeck. Mm. He was Dave Brubeck's second drummer. Um, and uh, Joe Morello was his first drummer, who went blind. Uh, both fantastic drummers. And I thought I was going to go in and wow Alan Dawson. Yeah. And at the end of the summer, he basically said, I don't think you got it, man. And, and I was just crushed. I mean, that I totally, crushed, yeah. oh, destroyed. It was like I remember you know, going out in the streets in Boston outside of Berkeley on uh, Boylston Street there. And I think it passes over a freeway or something. I and mean, you know, it's like you got these terrible thoughts like, what the hell is going to happen? What yeah. am I doing? Yeah. You know, where am I going to go? God, what, what, what went wrong here? And interestingly, it was the gift that all of a sudden I start hearing things in my head 
which are not just rhythmic things. Mm. Drummers are great with listening to the beating of the clock or the blinker on, on the, on the, on the, in the car or anything that keeps a rhythmic pattern and they tune into that and want to fragment and somehow permutate it or mess around with it. But then I started hearing pitch stuff in my head and, mm. and very slowly ended up putting my sticks and the drum set in the closet and switched first to arranging and then to writing. And what kind of music were you, was it, were you writing and arranging at that time? Was it, what genre? Was it, was it classical? I would, or I would say, you know, here's the thing is that, you know how it is. Um, here I am obsessed and, and adore writing, you know, instrumental music, uh, orchestral music, you know, that's sort of my f favorite thing. Whose isn't, mm -hmm. you know, if you're writing, doing movie scores. Yeah. But of course, that you didn't hear that on the radio. The only time you heard the orchestra was when it was backing a vocalist. Mm. And on the radio, when I was a kid, there was really only three stations. On there was no FM radio at first. It was all AM. Yeah. And of course, it just played the hits. The there was like a WABC and WNBC, and they played all the rock hits. And then my mom listened to WNEW which played Sinatra and the, you know, the sort of the jazz vocal stuff. And that was it, that's all I heard. Mm. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that there was this thing called contemporary orchestral classical music. Didn't even know it existed. Wow. Um, the only orchestra music I think we had in our house on record was uh, the Jackie Gleason Orchestra. Jackie Gleason had an orchestra. Yeah. And we had the Jackie Gleason Orchestra records and uh, Leroy Anderson. Leroy Anderson was best known for writing these, uh, what you call it, uh, short uh, orchestral uh, melodic, I don't know, pops pieces. I don't want to call them. They were written for the Boston Pops. Yeah, yeah. And, and I went to school with his, his son and my dad was stationed in Iceland with, with Leroy Anderson. So I knew the Anderson family. His probably his famous tune, uh, Leroy Anderson's probably his most famous tune was you know, Sleigh Ride. I can't sing it, but yeah, right, right. Sleigh Ride. Um, but that was the only orchestral music I knew. So when I started writing, it was, I happened when I was at college, I had voice, I had a lot of singers avail available. So I put together an acapella choir and an acapella vocal quartet and ended up writing vocal music. Oh, wow. And that was connected to me having sung in the choir. Right, and there's right. no better way to learn harmony and voice leading than to write for choirs. So that was my beginning. Also, I was playing in a jazz band and I wrote for the jazz band combo. Uh, so it was like arrangements slash writing little ditties. The first mm. series, I guess, longer piece of music I wrote was a concert, a piece for concert band oh. when I was at another school called North Texas State University. I'll shut up in a second, but before I moved out to LA in 1980, I'd never written anything orchestral Never had anything played bigger than some big, I had some big band charts yeah. when I was at North Texas. Uh, uh, played the concert band piece, 
these jazz things that I'd done for combo, the vocal stuff, that was it. Never a film music cue. Wow. Um, so what was the point in your life you decided to pursue film composition? And what were the kind of first jobs you had in the industry? Okay. Uh, I decided to um, pursue film music because uh, it was by chance that I stepped into a records, the record store in my hometown, Red Bank, New Jersey, the hometown of Count Basie, uh, and also uh, Kevin Smith, the director-producer, yeah. his offices were there. You can see this record store that I'm referring to, it's called Jack's, it's still there in the film Chasing Amy. If you ever see the film yeah, Chasing Amy, it's a, great film. it's a great movie, and a lot of that was shot right in Red Bank. The record store makes an appearance in that movie. <clears throat> I used to go as a kid and get all my records. <clears throat> and I actually bought my first drum set from oh, Jack's. Wow. Wow. Uh, but anyway, I walked in there once, and I probably had, you know, it's back when records were like, I don't know, I don't know, $7.20 or something. And went in there with $7.20 to get whatever it was I was going to get. But then I saw this record in the sound, now the sound, they call it the musical and movie record section, you know. Um, uh, and there was, there was a record that had a really cool cover called The Fantasy Film World of Bernard Herrmann. Oh, wow. And it had a beautiful cover. It was on the Phase 4 label, uh, which was a subsidiary of Decca Records. And on it, it had suites of scores that Herman had done for his fantasy films, like Generous uh, Scent of the Earth, Seventh Voids of Sinbad, The Day the Earth Stood Still, wow. and Fahrenheit 451. Four suites, four scores. And I was totally into science fiction, reading it at the time. I hadn't seen these movies. I wasn't really interested. I mean, I like movies, but it not I wasn't that interested in them, mm. and not film music at the time. I think I was really into prog rock, wow. you know, yeah. and wacko jazz. <laughs> um, so I bought this record home, dropped the needle on the opening track. Uh, it's called the Sunrise. It was called the Sunrise Music from uh, Journey Center of the Earth, and I have. I wish I could go back in time. I truly do, because I'm convinced that within a millisecond after hearing, or a few seconds after hearing the opening music from that suite, I said, what is this? Oh, it swept me away. I mean, uh, I fell in love with it instantaneously. And I'd started to get into writing or dabbling with orchestra music mm. or large ensemble stuff. And I was always in, always into that mysterious end of things. I was always trying to find ways to capture this sense of mystery. And of course, that was Herman's forte. Yeah. And the way he orchestrated things, incredible. The colors, undeniably brilliant. Say what you will about his music. As an orchestrator, he was, can't be beat. Mm, yeah. So I fell in love with that record and became obsessed with him. His music started, these records you have to go to New York City, to the bootleg stores to find, you know, uh, bootleg recordings of these scores of his. They didn't have videos, of course. Yeah. And so if you wanted to check out these movies, you'd have to go to the revival theaters in New York City. And I wasn't far from New York. And or there was this TV show called uh, 
what was it called? Not the Midnight. Um, oh God, there was a TV show that used to air that showed one movie, all the Million Dollar Movie, oh. Million Dollar Movie, and it would show one movie all week long. And so I would watch the movie and record the audio from the television. Uh huh. And then listen to it at night, and listen to how the music worked with the dialogue because they didn't have videos, and I didn't have the, I didn't have, a, couldn't camera and film it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, and so that's how I kind of learned film music is by listening to the audio tracks and then watching these movies on the Million Dollar Movie repeated times. Wow. And studied it that way, along with the, the one book. There were no courses on film music back then. I'm talking about in the '70s. No courses at all that I was aware of. But there was this one book called, it was really the only book that was readily available at the time on film music, which was Tony Thomas's book called Music for the Movies. Mm. And that became my Bible. I have my original copy of it in the back room. There, oh, wow. But I used to carry it with me everywhere. And that's how I got familiar with the names and the pictures and, and then went out and bought records, as many as I could. I have a humongous film music record collection. That's how I learned, not, not through classes, was, you know, through listening and reading. So basically. just self-teaching yourself, self-taught. Self self, kind of self, there was only yeah. one class I took in film music, and that was the year-long class that, they, that was taught at UCLA in their fully accredited program. They have, a, they have an extension program, which they've always had, I think it had for a long time, which is top flight, mm -hmm. and you can get a degree, a certificate in film scoring. Now at USC you can get a master's degree in film scoring. But <clears throat> during the fully accredited, in the fully accredited programs, I went there to study composition ultimately, there was one class that was offered by David Raxon. David Raxon again wrote the music for Laura, yeah. Forever Amber, uh, 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 Separate Tables, Al Capone, you know, massive amounts of movies. And uh, so that's the only, the absolutely only class I ever took on film scoring. Wow. So at that time, what, how did you get your foot in the industry? What was the, the path to becoming a composer? Did you reach out to other composers? Did you find directors that needed music? I mean, how did you kind of get their, your first foot the, in the door? The luckiest thing that ever happened to me, my, uh, my gift from God was being at UCLA and connecting with the student filmmakers. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time over at Melnitz, which was the film school at UCLA. I did tons of student films. Now it so happened that one of the students there got together enough money to turn his, his student thesis movie, his, whatever they called them, Project yeah. 3 or something, into a feature. And so here I was, here we were, there was a group of us who still were students there. But we were make, he was making a feature, and, he, and I begged him, I really hustled to get that job scoring it. It was a low-budget horror film mm. called The Dorm That Dripped Blood. <laughs> and, uh, but interestingly, it had a number of people in it that went, have gone on to do some pretty amazing things. Acting, a, a, an actress named Daphne Zuniga, who was in Melrose Place and wow. Spaceballs and in The Fly 2 film I scored. She was, uh, um, Mel Brooks is one of Mel Brooks's favorite actresses. Right, yeah, yeah. She, that was her first feature. 
Uh, the guy who did the monster makeup on it, Matthew Mungo, ended up winning an Academy Award for Bram Stoker's Dracula. That oh, was yeah. his first feature. Wow. <laughs> uh, the second film this guy did, uh, Scott Alexander, was co-editor, runner, and he ended up going and, and being nominated. I don't think he's ever won an Oscar. He wrote the screenplays for uh, movies like uh, uh, Ed Wood, People versus Lowry Flint. Yeah. The recent uh, miniseries on O.J. Simpson. Uh, that guy's amazing, you know. And here we all, and we, we were all just starting. And yeah. so I was just very blessed that, that Jeff, as the director's name was Jeff Obrow. He also produced it. It gave me a chance on that one. And, and I, even before I'd left UCLA, he did another movie. That film actually got picked up and found it got a distributor. So my very first movie was still a student. We were still students was playing in Westwood, you know. Wow. And albeit for like ten minutes. Yeah. But it was there in Westwood. He got enough money to do another movie, his second movie called The Power. And it was really the power. His second it was a psych it was like a what do you call it? A a, a supernatural thriller. It wasn't yeah. a horror film, supernatural thriller. And at that time, there were a bunch of low-budget companies like Roger Corman, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, his uh, New Horizons, New World Pictures, another low-budget company. They had bought the title of the, the, it used to be Roger Corman's New World Pictures. He sold that to the new New World Pictures. Yeah. There was Canon Films with uh, Menachem and Globus. There was Dino De Laurentiis had a low-budget film wing, and so if you were a student uh, at UCLA or USC and you were looking for a job when you finished school, you went to Roger Corman. Mm. Uh, and I happened to caught, catch the tail end of that. In its heyday, people like uh, you know Jack Nicholson got his start there. Uh, Cameron, James Cameron started oh, there. Joe Dante, the director, started with Roger Corman. James Horner started with Roger Corman. And so if you got a chance to do a Roger Corman movie, man, it was like you were working for Universal Studios. Wow. And so that was my first semi-serious uh, studio movie was for Roger Corman. Wow. And that goes back to 1984 or something like that, 1985. That's amazing. And, and I remember his studio used to be on, oh, what the hell is it? It's Main Street that goes in Santa Monica, right? And there's that building that's got the gig gigantic binoculars. Yeah. You know which one I'm talking about on Main Street? If you're going on south uh, on Main Street, and you're heading towards the Venice Circle. Okay. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? The Venice Circle. Venice. Okay, anyway. No, no, no. On Main Street down in Venice in Santa Monica. His Roger Corman studio used to be the Hammond Lumber. It was the Hammond Lumber. It was there forever. He never bothered to put up Roger Corman, you know, or, or New Horizons <laughs> movie studio. It was always, always Hammond Lumber. <laughs> and so I remember going on the Hammond Lumber lot, yeah. the, the Roger Corman studio lot. My wow. first time, and I was like, 
shaking like a leaf. And so I remember meeting with him. The movie that I did for Roger Corman was called, uh, was called, it went through a number of titles, uh, Wheels of Fire, mm. Desert Warrior. It was, they used, this is, the way, this is the way they described it. They called it their Road Warrior ripoff movie. <laughs> well, that's what Roger Corman do. He would, a big movie would come out, Star Wars would come out, he would do Battle Beyond the Stars, which is his, his Star Wars ripoff movie. Right. You know, Road Warrior came out, he did, uh, you know, uh, whatever I just mentioned, uh, uh, Desert Warrior. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> and um, so that was, you know, my thing. He sit down and he, he said he wanted to, you know, I think, Chris, what this movie needs is a rock and roll score. I said, Mr. Corman, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to try to do an orchestra score. I think this is going to lift this movie to a higher level. They had no money. Yeah. That was the, that's how I started my career was actually give Chris no money and he's going to figure out a way to get an orchestra in the room. Wow. And so that was my M.O. They could get a big bang for their buck. Yeah. I didn't make any money on any of those movies. The first like 15 movies, I don't think I made any money on them. I had another, I had other gigs to yeah. pay the bills. I mean, you know. Um, but anyway, I, I turned over an orchestra score for Roger Corman, and they adored it. As a matter of fact, if you had hit a home run with Roger Corman, your score would be used not only in the film that it was written for, but many others afterwards. Yeah, they'd yeah. reuse it. That was that was the Corman way. Wow. Save money on a future <laughs> score. Use the same. Bat, uh, Horner's scores. He did two movies for them, or three, I think. Uh huh. Two or three. I know two definitely. Maybe three. They reuse those everywhere. As a matter of fact, there's some bloody movie that Corman put out that has on the credit music by Chris Young and James Horner. <laughs> the movie was called. Um, Barbarian Queen. Oh yeah, I was and the interesting thing about Barbarian Queen was that the actress in it, Lana Clarkson, was the poor lady woman actress who um, was killed by um, Phil Spector. Oh no! Wow. She starred in that movie, and. Anyway, that score, there was no original music written for it. It was just, just all reused. some of my stuff from Road, my uh, Desert Warrior, and <laughs> I think Battle Beyond the Stars by James Horner. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so I hit a home run with those guys. And then that, because I had success there, uh, New World took an interest in me. The guy who was head of post-production at the time was Tony Randall, not the actor, right. but the same guy who ultimately directed Hellbound. Mm. And he bought me under his wing and I started doing a hell of a lot of movies for New World Pictures. Wow. I guess the, the biggest one being Hellraiser yeah. and Hellbound. And that sort of firmed me up. Even though I was doing other kinds of movies, action films, even a Whoopi Goldberg comedy mm, back yeah. in those days. The, the ones that I was known for were the ones that were successful in the box office, which were the spooky movies. Yeah, horror movies usually because they're done with a lower budget, so they get a bigger return yeah. at the box office. And, and you, you, of course, you went around then, but believe it or not, in the 80s, when I moved out here, 
I think there was a horror film that was released every other week wow. all year long. I mean, they just made money, man. You know, some guy could, like Jeff Obrow, get a camera and some of your buddies at school, make a movie, yeah. put it together, slasher movie, great. Someone's going to make money off of it. Yeah, for know? sure. And so there were lots of, I mean, lots of bad ones, but some good ones, too. Yeah, and you, yeah, I mean, you did also Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And uh, Hellraiser, you mentioned. And so th those early years, were you ever, uh, I mean, I'm sure maybe looking back at it, you were just young and eager and hungry, but were you ever worried about getting typecast as the horror guy? You know what? Hmm, that's a very good question. Did it ever dawn on me that by saying yes, 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 yeah. that I was, you know, uh, I was creating a mold that I was allowing myself to get poured into that I would never ever get out of, mm -hmm. you know, or haven't yet really. No, I would have to say I was so caught up in the idea of the people at, at, at New Line Cinema, there's another low budget company I meant yeah. to mention, wanting me for Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Are you kidding me? That was like, I felt like I was a superstar. Yeah. You know, and at the time, I really was, I was naive enough to think that, you know, horror films are horror films. But if you write a good score for a horror film, it's as equally valid as writing a really good score for drama. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah. As you know, Hollywood doesn't feel that way. No. <laughs> you know, at least one, at the end of the year when it comes time for nominating Awards scores and, like and movies, yeah. horror films, unless they're really exceptional for whatever reason, don't make them cut it. Same thing with comedies. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you know, it's interesting if you look over, you know, I mean, if, if I haven't really actually done the percentage count, but you know, I've had the great opportunity along the way of doing dramas and fantasies and uh, some comedies, even. Oh, yeah, I think your filmography is actually quite diverse and versatile. I don't think you did get typecast. I think maybe in your early, it was, you did a string of horror movies and you always kind of come back to the genre, but because you do so well in it, but I mean like stuff like Shipping News and Hard Rain and, and all these movies that just like I grew up with too and just I, like... I appreciate you yeah. recognizing that because, you know, I, 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 I just told you what life was like when I was a kid. Yeah. I was a drummer. I fell in love with the Beatles and all of that, that wonderful rock and roll was happening in, in the 60s the mid to late 60s, uh, I had, I, I must say, I, I'd be lying to you if I wasn't fascinated by music that, again, attempted to capture that darker side of things. Right. I can't find the right word, I know it sounds cheap, yeah, yeah. but I'm going to just use that word for the time being. You know, the, that interested me, I was fascinated by music that could do that, but that never was it at all. I mean, there's nothing I find more rewarding than writing a catchy tune, you know, writing a tune yeah. that that people can work into their lives and it speaks to them. And let's face it, songs are the language of the American public. From morning, from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to sleep, they can hear nothing but songs all day on the radio mm -hmm. and not complain. From birth until death, nothing but songs, rock and roll, rock and roll, rock and roll everywhere, everywhere. 
you know. Um, so, you know, how can you not want, wish that you could write something that people could connect with? And if that's the case, you better get into the business of writing songs. Yeah, yeah. And the closest we as film composers get is writing a tune that's using song form. That's, that's half the fun for me. But yes, indeed, I never imagined myself when I was a little kid being the guy who was going to spend a lot of his life writing music meant to scare people. Right. That's a, that's a, I can't, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that there wasn't a day or at least a week that goes by or at least two to three days out of every week where I ask myself, why God, why, why am I writing music, so much music that's whose primary intention is to make little girls scream, not cry, but yeah. scream. And why? Am I, am I, am I going to burn in hell for this? I don't know. I, I'm terrified that on the judgment day, he's going to say, hey man, what do, you, what do you expect? I mean, you wrote the music to hell fucking bound. You know, drag me to hell. You know, what the hell, you know. So this, I've written actually, I think, more, I've worked on more movies that have the devil in them. I think certainly than any other living composer, I'm guessing. Unless there's some composer who works for the Church of Satan and does, does, does so their promotional the, materials, promotional, <laughs> their promotional movies. Need a little darkness in your life? Why not Satan? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a, I mean, I was always, there's like six movies I've worked on that have the devil implied, either visually there, we see him, or his shadow, or is talked about, or something. So, That's kind of weird. Yeah, but I mean, because I was a good, I was a good Episcopalian boy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I like that. I like the church, and I like all it has to offer. So, but but yeah, you definitely. I think you surround yourself. I mean, you have you know, definitely a fascination with yeah, that yeah. genre. Yeah, so, shit, yeah. Well, what what about the horror genre do you think is so appealing? Because you, you you have expressed regret, like oh, you made little girls scream, but you also, I think it's such a it's 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 a fun thing. It's it's. I always like to analyze why we love to get scared, why we love to go to horror movies, go to haunted mazes, you know, just get the right. shit scared out of us because I think it's this something left over in our kind of like, you know, ancestors where we, yeah, you'd yeah. be terrified for oh, life, but now everything totally. is so safe, you know. But the theater, yeah. you're there in the dark and you're with strangers and to get that the jolt yes, yes. makes you feel alive. I, you know, I can't, I, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be a billionaire, <laughs> you know. I'd be able to figure out ways to get people not to go or more people to go. Uh -huh. But I, I remember there was a, there was a quote uh, that I always f bring up in moments like this, uh, written by H.P. Lovecraft, oh, the yeah. American horror author. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, it's not exactly right, but it's like, the oldest emotion known to mankind is fear. Yeah. And the greatest fear of them all is that of the unknown. And so I think there is, like you say, uh, this, this uh, fascination with everyone of what the hell is out there at nighttime? Mm. Can you imagine, of course, at a time many, 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 many hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, when we didn't have the comfort of night light, yeah. you know? When there was a time when we didn't even know, when man didn't even know how to make fire you know, mm -hmm. nighttime I would assume would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. You know, because what happens when the, the it's overcast and we you know, there's no there's no stars, there's no moon. It's pitch black. Yeah. 
yeah. and you're hearing these things out just within hands grasp from you. Yeah. You know, if you're sleeping outside, you know, it's, I can see it's, it's what is out there. Um, and, you know, there are people who have devoted their lives trying to not only explore what's out there on this planet, which is within our reach, but yeah. in outer space, it's what is out there in the darkness. Yeah. And that, to me, is, is, you know, is what I think binds us all together. And maybe f f movies allow us to experience that in a, in a comfortable environment. You know. I always think of it as almost um, when you see a horror movie in a movie theater. I always, it's like the, the modern equivalent of sitting around a campfire yes. and telling ghost stories. Oh yeah. And it's like that. It's scary, but it's fun, and it has this kind of camaraderie. You have a storyteller there telling you, and everyone's oh, yeah, just sure. you know sitting there waiting oh, for yeah. the because, twist or something. And the wonderful yeah. thing about that, you see, when you're telling a story, is that all you have to rely on is your imagination. Yeah. Now that's not one of the reasons why I, I'm not a fan of slasher movies. I've done way too many of them. I've never been a fan of them. Mm. You know, again, you get to write pretty active and insane music for them. Very dramatic, very extroverted. And I love doing that. But slasher films, no, I don't like that. What I do like is a great ghost story. Yeah. Because in a ghost story, everything is not seen. It's always imagined it's it's uh it's the fear of of that which is invisible and that to me is so much more exciting and to try to capture that in music is so much more exciting and there tends to be more of an emotional connection with the characters in those stories rather than just run or die you right know, type of <laughs> yeah you can actually build a more uh story a, a, one that you really did uh, that you did I really loved was Sinister, and I thought Sinister, yes. was such a great story too. And it was creepy and moody, and, and I thought your score was really brilliant. Oh, but thank you. but Ethan Hawke's character and just like the family, it just like pulls you in there and it, yeah, something yeah. like that. That's right. Um, I've done a few ghost stories. I'm still wait, waiting, wishing I could get the great ghost story yeah. film. My favorite film of all time that's in that darker, scary, I just call them scary movies, mm -hmm. not a horror film, is the original Haunting. Oh, yeah. The black and white one based on the Shirley Jackson book. Yeah. It was directed by Robert Wise and had Claire, uh, Claire, um, oh, Claire, oh, no, Claire Bloom, no, no, no. Uh, hi. Julie Harris oh, and yeah. Claire Bloom. Right. And, uh, uh, Russ Tamblin was mm. in that film. Yeah. It's a great story, and it's he, oh, it's done so well. It's scary. That's the only film that probably can still can scare me. I watch it every Halloween. Oh wow! That's you know, I try to yeah. at least the beginning of it. And actually, the house that that is used uh, for the exteriors of the opening of the movie because it's sort of a gothic haunted house mm -hmm. story. You never see these ghosts. You never see what's doing the mayhem in the house. But it's done really tastefully because the question that's brought up, as is in all, in all great ghost stories, is is it real or is it imagined? Yeah. And, and in the case of the main character played by Julie Harris, Eleanor Vance, we don't know whether or not she's cracked mm. and she's, she's the only person experiencing this, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, 
the house that was used for the exteriors is actually in Shakespeare's hometown in England. Oh, wow. It was a castle converted now into a hotel, and I've actually stayed in it. How was that? It, well, again, the interiors, the, all the interior shots in that movie were done on a soundstage. Right, right, right. The exteriors is exactly the same. I, I, I just, I was so excited to be a part of it. And of course, I relived the film in my head a million times. Mm. And I stayed in one of the rooms that, you know, if you look at the opening of the movie, there's a light up in one of the corner up in the top to the left of the main entrance. And I stayed in that room. You know. Again, in the house, the actual interior of the house is, is something different. Yes. <laughs> but yes, just being a part of that was fantastic. If you go outside here and you walk down the hall, in, in my, my office here, I have a gigantic collection of classic ghost stories. Wow. Um, I'm, I sometimes collect like first editions of in, old English, mm -hmm. Irish, Scottish ghost stories, German ghost stories um, by you know the great authors that were writing, you know, in the 1800s, the early 1900s. Yeah. I'm not so much into contemporary horror literature stuff or fantasy. Um, I, I'm embarrassed to say I've not read much of Stephen King's stuff, even though, of course, it's great. I'm more interested in the early stuff. Right. You know? Is there a, and do you find it, a, I always find that different ghost stories from different parts of the world kind of open up a window into the culture, too. And you've done um, you know, movies like The Grudge, which is a Japanese you know, right. ghost story, even though yours was the, a remake but of it. But it, do you find that you can tap into the people of, of the certain place by reading, like, oh, from... Irish ghost stories different from Japanese ghost stories or stuff like that? Uh, you mean when I read them? Yes, yeah. Uh, well, there's definitely a difference between, uh, you know, sort of the classic uh, English and Irish Gothic mm. ghost story. Uh, you know, the Americans didn't tap into that so well. They weren't expected yeah. to because that didn't actually didn't have Gothic architecture to, to write. Right. Um, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, from that moment on, there's a specific t uh, type of story that the Americans wrote as opposed to those overseas. That's about the only difference. Mm. Again, the Japanese thing, yes, write the grudge, but let's, there's not many Japanese ghost story writers that I'm aware of right. that were writing back in those days. Yeah, right. You know, no, I guess I'm 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 sort of primarily an English ghost story guy. <laughs> you know, they were the you know ghost stories and and murder mysteries. That, yes. that was their thing. Yeah, as we know. So let's uh, let's skip ahead a little bit, and okay. I do want to talk about some other stuff too. But let's skip. We're talking about kind of ghost stories in the genre, and we're here to talk about Pet Cemetery as well. Talk about the, the film, and you know, everyone, I, I remember watching the original adaptation from the book. This is another adaptation from Stephen King's novel. Um, how did you get involved with this movie, and what, 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 did it, what, did it, what was the appeal to it, to, to do it? Um, the reason why I got involved, it's not like I was hunting it down. Mm -hmm. It happened because the directors wanted me. Wow. Uh, they hunted me down. Why did they want me? They were, they were significantly younger than I am, but they were raised on the films that I had scored. And I think they really responded to the music, and, and I've had the great fortune of some younger directors 
wanting to have me come on board because I scored the films they fell in, fell in love with. This is a classic example of that. Younger directors wanting that older dude who did you know the scores for those movies that they liked. Right. Um, so and and then fortunately, uh, Randy Spenlove, who was the head, who is the head of music at Paramount, thought it was a great idea and supported yeah. it wholeheartedly. We used to work as a as a, a team when he was the head of the music department at uh, Miramax. Mm -hmm. I did a number of movies with him back then, so we had a we had a great relationship. I adore him. I had done some Paramount movies before, but it had been in years since I'd been connecting with them. As a matter of fact, my first major studio, may I say major studio movie, Roger Corman, of course, being the first <laughs> studio movie, but, um, but the first major picture I did, I guess major studio picture, was, was uh, Jennifer 8. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. The rescoring of that. And... Uh, that was a great experience. And they, Paramount fell in love with me, and I ended up doing a whole slew of movies for them back in those days, including you mentioned Hard Rain. Yeah, I remember that was a Paramount movie. That was that was a that was a, a sleepover movie for me. That was when my friends would come over. We'd always throw on Hard Rain, and to this day, seriously, it's, yeah, it, I haven't it, seen that film in years. It's it's like typical '90s, kind of like action, but it's like I love it. And oh, you love it. And your and your main titles, that opening title sequence when it's just coming yeah, into yeah, sure. And the rain starts coming down on the logo. Yeah, 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 sure. oh, it's, I love it. It's, oh, thank you. It's so cheesy sometimes, but it's it, I love uh, Christian Slater and Morgan Freeman. I thought it was a yeah. great, great. I, action you play. know, I again, I haven't <laughs> seen that in years, but I'll tell you something. That was like one of the first movies they actually. Uh, Flew me or flew me or I, I can't remember exactly where they shot that. Uh -huh. It was somewhere in, in California, but out in the desert somewhere. They had taken over a a like I think it was like a fucking like looked like the size of like a blimp hanger, like the Hindenburg hangar or something like uh -huh. that. Uh, but they they made you would you would have blown your mind that town you know because it's about a town that gets flooded. Yeah, right? yeah. You know they they pulled that off. They just build the town. In they build a town in a gigantic, a massive sized tank. Wow! And instead of the water going up, <laughs> the town, the town went down. Was on <laughs> lifts, and they sunk the town down That's on amazing. an elevator. Wow! And all that stuff, all those chases, all that stuff was done in that tank. And I remember going there, and I'm, I have this memory of like, it, I'm exaggerating here, but to walk around the tank yeah. from one spot going all the way around back, like a 10 minute walk, <laughs> was like gigantic. That's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. The director was uh, Mikhail Solomon, and he had worked with James Cameron he was James Cameron's underwater specialist mm. for, I guess, cinematographer for, um, what was that underwater movie? Oh, Abyss. Abyss. The Abyss. Yeah. And uh, so I was thrilled to be on that one. And um, That's a good one. It holds up. It definitely holds up. To me, uh, it does. <laughs> okay, I'd grow, I haven't seen it, like I said, in years. <laughs> it's, worth, it's worth a rent. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, it's interesting. Uh, I've just listened to the score yesterday for the first time in probably well, that's not true. Uh, I, you know, one of my side projects is I'm going back and readdressing all of my, or revisiting all of my old scores, mm. and seeing if somehow I can rework them into 
uh, something that's more concert stage friendly. Or oh, wow. I'm not expecting these things to get performed, but nonetheless what I'm doing is taking the score and then taking my favorite cues and stringing them together or putting them in movements mm. or maybe a single movement uh, or maybe uh, adding, you know, adding connective things here sent out or whatever. Yeah. And, and uh, in the case of Hard Rain, uh, writing a, it's going to be for harmonica and orchestra because there's harmonicas featured in some of those cues. Yeah. And now I've written a big harmonica solo part play on top of the orchestra. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> We're going to be getting the harmonica player in here in about two weeks to oh, record wow. hard rain, harmonica. That's incredible. Whatever. That's really cool. He's from, yeah. He's a drummer. <laughs> yep. All my best buds are drummers. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had it in my head. I was never, God forgot to give it to me in my wrists and my feet. And that's where you have to have it. Right. You're a drummer. <laughs> you know. I mean, it wasn't like I was bad. It's just my head was moving way faster than this ever did. Yeah. yeah. And in my head, I was Buddy Rich. <laughs> I could hear it. I could do it in my head. But I just couldn't do it here. So, but it was all worked out great, you know. Yeah. It's amazing that, that when I look back on that time with um, Alan Dawson at Berkeley School of Music, course the time I was ready to jump off the bridge there right. but it all was for it all worked out it was that was he was his disapproval of my drumming was a necessary step for me to become a composer yeah and always you look back at certain situations everybody has that moment of like something that pushes you it might be hurt and really kind of crushes you but it it ends up you giving a platform hopefully to, yeah hopefully, hopefully. It does. not always man it's true. Some people get crushed who never recuperate. No, it's tough. It's especially if that's your passion and everything. Yeah. And, and you looked up to him and yeah, and, I did, uh, yeah. God, but was, I was young enough. Yeah. It wasn't like I was going to him, speak to him at the age of forty something. Yeah. And finding out that he had, you know, it was not only did he think I had no talent, but it was too late to yeah. do anything about it. Right. You know, um, no, I was like. I don't know, 19 or 20 or something like that, maybe. Yeah, that's the crut. That would crush. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's funny. <laughs> the end of that story is, you know uh, Stanley Clark, the bass player? I don't know him. You know Stanley Clark, the famous jazz bass? He played, with, he played with Chick Corea. Okay. Um, and, and, and as a film composer as well, very famous jazz bass player. And uh, a wonderful guy and a great composer. And uh, I've gotten to know him. And... Uh, I told him that story, he goes, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, Chris, if I'd known you back then, I would have told you that Alan said that to just about everybody, <laughs> that they didn't have it. Wow. See? That's you know, <laughs> so I said, well, I didn't know that, and actually I thank him for saying that. Yeah. Because you know, if he'd said, you're the greatest thing since Buddy Rich, who knows, I may never have become a film composer. <laughs> And then we wouldn't have your amazing film scores. <laughs> yeah. So we were talking, you know, some of various projects and stuff. You, through your career, you've gotten to work with some uh, incredible directors, older, new directors, older direct, veteran directors. Right. Um, in your experience, when you fart, when you start working on a film, what's your process to, I guess, to feel out a director? Do you, because in, at the end, you're going to be servicing their vision and 
you're servicing the film. I'm sure you've worked with hot-headed directors, stubborn directors, laid-back directors. How do you adapt, I guess, yourself to a director's personality? Right. Well, the first thing you have to do, of course, is realize that your primary mission is to uh, get inside his head. Mm. That he has been living with that movie for a very, very long time. And for starters, remember, you are the first real outsider that's seen the film. For instance, on Pet Cemetery, I was really, when they showed me the movie, the rough cut of the movie, to see if I was interested in doing it, mm -hmm. they hadn't even shown their wives the film yet. Wow. And so we're the first outsiders. First of all, no matter what the film is, you have to say to the director, this is amazing. You know, your first mission is to make sure that the director knows that you're on board. Now, fortunately, there's not been a single movie that I've seen where I haven't connected to something about it that hasn't really excited me. There's something in the film that I always, that, uh, that is, is enough for me to want to have a relationship with him. I right. haven't fallen, some of them I fall in love with immediately, but a lot of them I, I'm ready to date. I could see myself dating this movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so uh, that's the important thing. I, I try to get inside the director's head. I try to see the film from their perspective. Sometimes, especially when I was younger, I would get in a little sparring moments with them. If, if I was convinced the direction I was going was right, and they, but they were convinced it was wrong. At the end of the day, I've learned that the directors generally, if not always, are right in a strange way. They may not be able to articulate in a, in a, you know, what they're looking for in a manner that seems logical, mm. but in, if you read in between the lines, there's something there that is a guiding light that gives you a perspective on the scene and you know the movie and, and in the scene whatever scene you're working on right right that that, uh, that if you pay attention to will actually bring you to the right solution you know i've i have endless story not endless but numerous stories where a director is like i what i know what i normally do now is uh, you know I will watch the film with it, you know, uh, with with it, well, on my own. Uh, it's usually screener for me, and then they get my reaction if I'm interested in doing it. Then I get the film, and I start coming up with themes. I'll start imagining themes for characters or for the film in general, walking around town. I get away from the movie. I watch it a couple times. Then if I've got enough time, I'll stay away from the film for 10 days. I won't even look at it, mm. but just think themes and then sing them into my cell phone. And uh, then ultimately, um, I'll uh, pick with the aid of my assistants. It's really hard for me to know what's right for the movie. Mm. They help me pick the most valuable themes, multiple themes, three themes. I mean, Pet Cemetery, when the first show and film, I showed them six different ways to score the beginning, the opening of the movie. Wow. And I like doing that. I like showing them alternative op, you know, options. Right. So if they don't like uh, what's behind door number one, maybe they'll like what's behind door number two or door number three. I've heard and that as a advice from other composers saying, yeah, you, 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 you can't come to the table with saying, 
I've done this, and this is the greatest thing in the world. Because if they don't like it, then you have you're nowhere else. You get screwed. Yeah. And I made that. I used to make that mistake. Mm. I would try to put all my chips on the table behind one idea, and the mistake that you make, of course, is that the mistake that's made is if you're only presenting one idea and he doesn't like it, chances are you're going to get defensive. Yeah. When he tells you no. It's like, we're like animals, you know, we piss circles around ourselves yeah. and we go, don't you dare step over that. <laughs> yeah. now, wait a second, this is right. Now, let me tell you why it's right. The thing about directors is they know instinctively. They don't know why, they just go, yeah, this is not right. This is not right, it's just yeah. not right. But why? But, but you know, this is what, listen to this, listen to that. Yeah, I'm listening, I don't like it. Right, you know? yeah. So that, you know, I think I was working on, the film was actually, um, it took me this long to finally learn this lesson. It was like Spider-Man 3. Really? Wow. Yeah. Because I used to just show, like, this is my, this is the theme I have. Or maybe, maybe I would come up with alternative themes, but I was always sort of pushing one. Mm. And I remember the very first scene that I scored for Spider-Man 3 was the, uh, the birth of the Sandman scene. It was a beautiful scene. And he had, he had tempted that with music from Hellbound or something. And I thought, wow, I can do this. Right. And he told me what he was looking for. And I made the mistake of doing something that was a little too, I was scared shitless. Even though I worked with him before, here I was doing a Spider-Man movie. Yeah. And, you know, trying to follow, on, you know, Danny, you know. Right. Um, and I, I cannot tell why. I was not a comic book enthusiast when I was a kid. I didn't know shit about Spider-Man. Uh, I think I'm gonna knock him out with that cue. His first show and tell, he listens to him and he goes, uh, that's not quite right. And I had nothing else to show him on that scene. And it was my first cue for, you know, on that movie. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I realized, you know, I can't do this anymore. I have to, I have to show options. And so mm -hmm. now, uh, you know, every major scene that involves a theme, you know, um, I will offer up multiple versions so that he can, they can pick, mm. you know. Um, and that's been smart. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's a no-go on the first one, I get a, you get a better chance right. within three or four ideas to find something that will get closer to what he's looking for. And when you've worked with a director multiple times, and you've mentioned Sam Raimi, you've, you've done several films with him. Right. Um, another uh, director you've worked with is John Emile. John Emile. Emile, and I mean, Copycat the Core, Man yeah. Too Little, Entrapment Creation, which That's is an right. amazing score. When you work with the director multiple times, do you know them better by like, do you have a workflow or is it still like starting fresh and trying to figure it, figure it out? You know what? You know, you certainly you have a, a, a history with them. Mm -hmm. But when you sit down, when I sit down with a director, I'm, I'm even though if I'm like in each of these cases, I'm still nervous. I'm still, yeah. I got to make sure I do right for him this time. Uh, you know, there's always this fear of, of fumbling the ball, and I don't want this to be the last movie I do with this person because I so much value my time with them. Yeah. And so you're there to outdo, you know, out do yourself each time. And, uh, you know, for instance, with John, John and I were so much, are so much alike. I haven't done a film with him because he hasn't done a feature since uh, uh, Cre creation. creation. Uh, he was like me. He 
he strived to do different genres. He didn't want to get locked into one, and I was all yeah. for that. And he was willing to give me a tr an opportunity to spread my wings and do things I hadn't done before. Mm. The first movie I did with him was Copycat. Yeah. The only reason why I did that movie is because his original composer, who was James Newton Howard, left sure. that movie so that he could do Waterworld. He got a call to replace uh. Mark Isham on Waterworld. So he bailed on Copycat, thank the Lord. <laughs> and and um, lo and behold, I got an opportunity to do that. And the reason why he selected me ultimately on that one is he said, you know, as it turns out, you know, 90% of the score, the temp score, was your music. Wow. So I, I said to the picture, by the way, who is this guy? <laughs> who is this Chris Young? Okay, I'll try. I'll give him a call. We got along well. And, and the, first, the first, I must say, in Copycat, I, you know, he, was a, he was a musician. He studied sitar, believe mm. it or not. And so I was able to kind of, he would talk, I want, I hear, because he was a, somewhat of a musician, he would talk about registers, and I could actually almost hear what he was thinking. Wow. You know, I mean, I tried to get inside of his head, and I, I go, I hear something up there, like, and I go, oh, I think I know what he means, Yeah. you know. And so I could actually, I almost felt like in that first film, I got inside his head and could hear the score he was hearing. Wow. Remember back in those days, we didn't do mock-ups. Yeah, yeah. We would, I would sit at the piano and play this stuff for him. And he liked that. He didn't mind that. My piano playing is terrible. <laughs> but apparently, you know, we'd get on the stage with the orchestra and we'd run through like the main tenor and go, John, is this anything like you thought it was gonna sound like? And he goes, this is exactly the way I thought it was gonna sound. Wow, that, that must feel good when you hear that though. Yeah, you better believe it. That's, no, that's not surprising. Remember back in those days when a composer would go on the stage, no one had heard the score. He hadn't right. heard it, the director hadn't heard it. Yeah. You know, I can. I, mean, I was chain smoking because I hadn't really heard it except inside my head. Right, so you were nervous as well. Nervous, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, you know, orchestrators, if you had the money for orchestrators, they would say, you know, Chris, it's going to be okay, it's okay, I got it, I hear it, it's okay. Yeah. Really, you think it's going to work? <laughs> wow, yeah. that's amazing. Um, you got to work with another director that I really loved, uh, or still love, Barry Levinson. On Levinson. Bandits, that was yeah. I think the only film you did with him, right? What's that? It was, Bandits was the only film. The only film yeah. I did with him. What, what was Barry like? Because he's, I think he's such a great director. And God, he's a great director. I love that movie. It's one oh, of his so under, underrated you... film of his, but yeah, but it's great. What was that experience like working with Barry? You know what? I got the call. Barry Levinson is interested in having you do Bandits. I said, what? Barry Levinson is interested. I'm a horror guy. What's he want me for? You know, that's it's getting to the point where I was beginning to worry that this horror thing was going to catch up with me. Yeah. Um, and he lived in uh, he lived in in Reading, Connecticut, uh, which is West Reading, Connecticut, which is where Charles Ives, the American composer, lived. Mm. But the thing with Barry was, you had to fly out to his house if you were interested. You had to pay, you had to pay for the plane ticket mm -hmm. and you'd fly out to his house and then he'd screen the film for you at his home and then you'd talk afterwards.
I was absolutely stunned by that movie. I remember the lights came up and I was, I was speechless. I said, Mary, this movie is absolutely amazing. I, I'm with you. Yeah. An underrated masterpiece yeah. of sorts. Yeah. It's been years since I've seen that. I just remember being electrified in ways that I'd never had by a movie that I was seeing for the first time. Yeah. So some uh, two, two scores you did, which are absolutely fantastic, are Monkey King 1 and 2. Oh, yeah, sure. And uh, Thank you for And much. that's, uh, you know, you're scoring a Chinese blockbuster. It's not big here in the United States, but it's no. a huge cultural phenomenon in China. Um, how did you get enticed to that side, you know, to that kind of cinema over there? Was it, did they seek you out? And yeah, again, they sought me out. Wow. That's they had money, <laughs> they were, it was like a big Chinese uh, uh, project and I guess they had money or they wanted to get some Los Angeles involvement in it, you know, talent from Los Angeles and I guess the music was the one of the few areas where they had enough money to get someone from LA involved yeah. and the director said this is the guy I want and and so uh, I was just stunned when I got that gig and I must say it's been a while since I've heard the scores but uh, you know uh, it was it was a great experience in being given the chance to return to that sort of old-school way of yeah, thinking about yeah. film scoring, where so melody is critical. Right, you know? we don't see that too often anymore. It's kind of, you know, the melody, I, I miss those melodic, you know, heavy scores that kind of like, some people always, I always read crit criticisms about film music saying, oh, it's too manipulative, it's too, it guides you too much, but that's, that's what I want. I want right. to take my hand and pull me, you know, yeah, yeah, I want to feel something. I totally something. know what you mean. Yeah. And I love those types of scores, which is why I love your music so much. But it's uh, I, I appreciate yeah. that. And so <laughs> the wonderful thing about that is that um, it was the strangest thing in that I flew over there. We we went through the movie. The movie was so far from being completed, number one. Mm. I mean, it was all blue screen stuff. I didn't really understand what was going on. And the thing is in Chinese, with, with it, when they sent me a copy with American subtitles, I really didn't even understand the plot, quite frankly. <laughs> Um, but really, you know, it, the, the Chinese way of thinking about scoring movies is not like the American way. Yeah. It was like, here I want a cue to start and it should end somewhere around here and I don't care if you hit much of anything. Maybe you need to hit address this moment and this moment. And then we're talking like a five minute cue here and there. <laughs> Uh, but I just want you, this is the mood I'm looking for. So it was all about the music addressing the bigger picture of the subtext of the scene while they're getting into the minutia. Wow. You know what, I didn't, he, I played him some themes on the piano via Skype. We did a theme session at the piano. That was the last time I heard from him <laughs> until we were at the scoring session and that again was done through uh, Source Connect. He was in China, I was here, and the orchestra was in Bratislava. Wow. <laughs> and so he didn't hear anything, nothing until the downbeat of the first session. Wow. No mock-ups, none of that. It was totally old school. 
Yeah, that's a lot of I trust. Didn't hear, I didn't hear anymore. It was all, everything was sketched out on paper. Wow. And then the next, next, you know, first time I heard it was, was uh, on the stage. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to, uh, kind of touching back to uh, Pet Cemetery, jumping back forward again, um, we talked about Stephen King. He talked about ghost stories. Um, and I, th yes. I don't think we touched upon what, what drew you to, to do this. So they, they sought you out. You came on board and worked with these uh, younger directors. Uh, what, did, what were the goals for you with this movie? What did you want to accomplish with Pet Cemetery? With your music? Oh, with my music? With your music, yeah. What was the musical goals for your score this, here? This was definitely a situation where I wanted my music to make the great team at Paramount happy with having hired me. I hate to put it that way, mm. but I hadn't done a Paramount film in years. And to have been given the opportunity to come back on campus, as it were, my mission was to try to read as many minds as I could, as I needed to, and figure out a way to come up with a score that would make everyone happy. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I think they hired me, why Randy approved him. He said, we need a guy, because I know they were considering younger, you know, newcomers into the horror world. Yeah. Uh, but they, I think they hired, brought me on because they knew that they probably needed a guy with experience. Who, if, they, if we started off with an orchestra score and they said, that's all wrong, we need a synth, and we started with, then we moved to synth, they go, that's all wrong, we need another bagpipe, mm -hmm. I would be okay, 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 I can do this, you know. Right. I was able to be flexible. So my mission truly was to, I was so happy, so thankful to be back there again that uh, my mission was, you know, to make everyone very comfortable with me being a part of the team and wanting to make a touchdown for, for them, right. as well as for myself, but for them. And, and so that was my mission, you know. Um, and the no wonderful thing about it is the score didn't suffer. It actually got better because of the input I got, wow. you know. Uh, again, the score originally was going to go orchestral, um, and and then it was decided um, that it was the wrong direction, and I had to pay attention mm. to a couple of the producers on it and uh, understand what their take on it was, and 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 they guided me into seeing the film from a different perspective, and and so the score did a. Or 180, 180, and and uh, and ultimately aligning myself with their thought, their thought process, gave me uh, a direction that ultimately was the right direction for the movie. This is a synth score, and that's what it was meant to be. Wow, it could have been an orchestral score, but a synth score I think was right for this movie ultimately. Do you? Uh when you're working with synths, and it's you know you're ultimately creating every sound, and it's not That's from right. acoustic instruments. Uh, how, is it e more difficult to envision that in your head, or do you do you have to hear it play out in front of you before you know what's right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 have a sound in your head, mm -hmm. but we work as a team, and I have it all in my I have it pretty clearly in my head, and then. Um, we work together to try to establish that repertoire of sounds right. that uh, that 
that are unique to the movie. That's, that's my mm -hmm. thing is I try to stay away from the factory stuff like that was the plague. Yeah. You know, and try to create new sounds. As many, I mean, it's not like I don't, we don't use factory stuff, but it's, it's always we try to modify in such a way that it doesn't sound kind of like your you know, standard factory stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And wow. so that's the mission. Uh, of course, when you're doing an, an orchestra score, an acoustic score, it's different. There's only, you know, a flute is a flute is a flute. Right. You know, <laughs> and you put the notes down on the paper and it's played and it sounds like a flute, right. which is a flute, which is a flute. <laughs> right. You know. But in the electronic world, anything goes. The door is open wide for absolutely, you know, it's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Conceptually, it's, it's an infinite world of sounds that you're stepping absolutely. into. Absolutely, yeah. And it's really hard, I get it. In the world of film music, you gotta crank music out so quickly that you really don't have the opportunity to do this kind of exploration. I was very lucky on this movie. I got a lot of time and it gave me the opportunity to go, I'm just not gonna knock this thing off quickly. Because you mentioned it was, what you said, five months? Five months, wow. a little bit under five months, that's right. That's... I started just before Halloween, as I were, sometime in October wow. of last year. That's... And we've been working on it constantly, steadily. Right up to the dub, right right up to the day of the dub, and then putting the music to reworking the music for the soundtrack release, wow. which had to be delivered last Thursday, last Wednesday. So you literally, it's it's just finished, literally like yes, last week. Yes, literally, just 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 just. So you're just, finally, it's finally out of your. Uh, not, yeah, I. Uh, well, yes. I mean, not no. Uh, I mean, it's still in my head. Yeah, it's still yeah, here. But it's not something that I'm worrying about. Right. So to, to sort of wrap things up, uh, sure. I always like to ask composers, and you mentioned your process a little bit earlier, but where does the first note come from? You mentioned you'd like to take walks, step away That's from the right. film. But is there something that you hone in on on a film that gets that first idea? Do you look at the characters, the plot? Is it the central idea, or is it images that you're seeing? Uh, what, what kind of like yes, triggers that first thing? That's a very, very good question. Um, I would say that it's all of all of the above. It's 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 the you know if it's possible when I see the film for the first time, I love to see it without the temp. Very mm. rarely happens. But yeah. If I can, it's great. This film, no, I saw it with the temp. Um, but I do like to watch the film a couple of times. If I can, without the temp the best because it gives me an open uh, field to run around in yeah, and not yeah. have to bump into temp concepts. But I like to watch the film a few times and then let it just sit inside my head. The whole experience of just having watched the film like an audience. And as I said, uh, you know, in my head, I'll start seeing it from different angles. You know, different angles, trying to focus in on on aspects of it that I think are important. Like, mm. like this whole thing in this movie was this issue with the Wendigo, you uh. know, and the the ancient uh, uh, Native American uh, uh, history connected to right. the burial ground, and of course that concept bought. Uh, the potential of a sonority 
immediately into the party that I hadn't dealt with in any other horror movie. Wow. So there was that element. Um, again, the, the fact that it is about a, 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 a daughter, a, a father-daughter relationship. And, you know, I've got a daughter too, and the question is how far would you go to, if I was in his position, would I have made the same decision? Right. You know, if my daughter was to die and I got the opportunity to bring her back to life, would I? Would I? Even if I knew what the outcome was going to be. Right. You know, so there was all that stuff that was bouncing around in my head. Mm. And fortunately, I never, never suffered from um, writer's, uh, uh, what do you call it, cramp or whatever. Writer's block. Block, okay. thank you, block. Uh, you know, usually things start coming into my head like almost immediately, and as I said, back in the early days, it was the portable cassette. Well, actually, yeah. back in the really early days, I think it was, you'd write it down on paper, <laughs> and then you'd record. No, I think I, yeah, I didn't have portable, yeah, we always had portable cassette machines. Yeah, yeah. The big, the big things. Right. And I would have one of those with me, sing into that. Then it became the digital cassette, you know, things, and now it's your cell phone. Yeah. So I just hum in, anything that comes into my head, I will hum, Hum into it, you know, hum that idea, or you know, whatever. I'll try to capture that idea with my mouth away from the piano. Mm. I don't sit at the piano. I don't sit at the at the synth or at the computer. I want to get as far away from that. But if I need the pia piano, I'll go to the piano, not the computer. Right. I don't start seeking things in the computer. Mm. And I'm not looking through libraries to try to find something that's out there already. Rather, I'm trying to get in tune with sounds in my head, wow. and and uh, and it then begins the journey of trying to coming up with themes. It's interesting. I can spit out tunes fairly quickly. Yeah, lots of them, but to come up with the sounds, you now that takes time. Yeah, getting the right colors, because it's not going to be a flute as a flute as a flute. It's like okay. If it's not going to be a flute, what the hell is it going to be on that melody? Right. It's not like straight acoustic, and that takes a lot of time. Yeah, I mean that's the process. That's the magic that can't be, you know, defining that that sound. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of the magic and the fun, you know. Um, so to 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 you you know to end it, to end the interview, uh, you you are a teacher. Everyone I talk that's to right. tells me how how much they love you when they take your classes and. And when you're their uh, professor, um, if you had to give one, I guess, tip to a young composer or a young filmmaker, anybody just coming into this industry to, with ideas and trying to, you know, find their path, what's the one advice you would give a young person coming the in? The one bit of advice I would give for a young person who's already made the commitment to come to yes, Los Angeles. Yes, who's like, this is my path but, and okay. this is my future. Because yeah, often the majority of the composers that I meet are actually not here. Well, I do meet a lot here in L.A., of course. Yeah. But that's different than the ones that I meet when I'm overseas teaching. Mm -hmm. The ones that I meet when I'm overseas teaching are ones that have been dreaming about coming to Los Angeles, but don't know anybody or are afraid to, to try it because it just seems like this Los Angeles thing is too overwhelming. Okay. So, uh, the, for, of course, the first step is to, is to not, cons not try to shut that, that voice inside your head that gives you an infinite amount of reasons why you shouldn't move out here. Mm. So it's always exciting for me when I'm able to convince someone to give it a try. I've got someone just left yesterday, and I two. It was a couple, and then a guy 
that I met in Spain, and there was one of them was, it was their first trip out there. They fell in love with her coming back. Anyway, so to them it would be, please come out, check it out, try it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's a friendly a friendly environment here, and there's absolutely no reason why over a period of time something can't happen. You may not become the next John Williams, but there's enough happening out here whereby yeah. you'll probably do better here than you would in your hometown and whatever country you're in. Right. But to someone who lives out here, who's just moved out here, who's just starting, I'd say, make sure that your expectations are realistic. I say it's a five, I, call, I tell my class, you know, it's like a five, I call it the five-year plan. Yeah. The first year is just about surviving. Your first year out here, you shouldn't expect anything really to happen. In, in, you're certainly not gonna get paid to write music unless your last name is Williams, you yeah. know. Um, but, you know, the first year is just about trying to get through it alive and not quitting. Because, the, you know, the, the, the rate of, of people giving up is really high during the first year. It is. I, I call it, uh, with me and my friends, I call it the two-year test. I the two-year test. The two-year test, because I usually notice... Because I'm from the East Coast, I'm from Maryland, okay. so I've had a lot of friends who've moved out here too, and I've seen other people move out here, and and it's usually around the two-year mark they decide if it's for them or not, and then I see some people head back home. Yeah, I, I get it, the yeah. two-year thing. Yeah, yeah, I can see the two-year thing, but sometimes people will decide even in two years that they or it's not for them because they were expecting to be scoring some big movie, yeah. Yeah. which may not happen for them for twenty years, yeah. let alone two years. Wonderful thing about film scoring, as you know, is that you can get it in any time. It's not, it's, if they wanted to be rock and roll stars, I'd go, okay, you better get your act together and have something on the radio by the time you're 34. Because, you know, after you're 34, it's kind of a gradual diminuendo <laughs> right. the, uh, or disappearance or whatever. But in film, you know, you grow constantly, you can grow constantly. Sometimes you won't hit your, your stride or even get recognized until you're in your 40s or 50s. I mean, Alexander Desplat, when, when did he get known in the United States? When he was in his 40s, right? Yeah, yeah. He's now in his 50s, I think, right? Yeah, it's been, yeah. He's, yeah, so. Yeah, um, 50s or late 50s, or at least. 50 what? Probably late 50s, I think. I'm not sure so exactly. Maybe, maybe he made his, <laughs> how long has he been known in the United States? 10 years, 15, 12? Yeah, something like that. So, yeah. I mean, he didn't, you know, I mean, when he was in his 20s, no one knew who he was in the United States. Right, right. When he was in his 30s, nobody knew who he was, maybe until he was in his late 30s. And we're talking about people who move out here when they're 23, and if they're not stars by the time they're 26, they're ready to go home. Yeah. I say, slow down here. Yeah. You know. Get through the first year. Don't expect much. Make yourself available to anyone and everyone for free. You know, just so you get your name out there. Be the guy that's, that's fun to be with, that works hard, gets the job done on time, delivers a fantastic product, but is, a gr is great to be with. Yeah. And then you, you sort of expand the repertoire of people believe in your talent, and just hopefully you know how it is. Ultimately, it does, this is, this is the thing that mystifies me, is that why do certain people meet that right director, and why do most of them not? You know, that I can't explain. I've met so many hundreds, thousands of, of extremely talented composers who just don't make that connection yeah. with that one director. But 
have found ways to survive in, in the movie music scene out here and are happy. They're okay. You know, so I say five years, I say five years, and I mean five years, if after five years it's not really starting to spin out the way you were expecting, maybe it's time to reevaluate how you're doing, how you're going about it. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you got caught into doing something, you know, that really wasn't your initial intention. Right. You wanted to be a composer, but you got into orchestrating, you know, you wanted to uh, write music for games, but you ended up writing commercial music or something, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like, uh, reevaluate, don't give up because, yeah. again, most film composers don't start making their mark until they're into their mid-30s, right? Something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I moved out, I've been out here for eight years and it wasn't until year four or five where I actually got a job, a really great paying job and, and it, it takes time. It's yeah. a slower going, the big, I think people get because you look back at home and everyone is buying houses and having yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then you're here in a one bedroom yeah, and it's yeah, like yeah, sure. $2,000 a month and you're like, oh fuck, I gotta go back home. But yeah, yeah. It, it's just slow going. But if this is really what you want, you have to stick yeah, it out. Yeah, you have to stick with it. Yeah, agreed. And I was lucky that I moved out at a time where I was naive and uh, and uh, all, the, all the reasons why I shouldn't be coming out here were not strong enough to to flush the the enthuse that sort of naive enthusiasm. Right. So that that's what I suggest is they don't you know, and if they need to work at McDonald's their first year, then they should work at McDonald's. Absolutely, get a paying job and do it on the side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Chris, I want to thank you so much for your time this thank evening. Thank you so much it was for so having much fun listening. This is this has been fabulous. Thank you very very much. And uh, I'm so grateful for your time. So and, and thank and congratulations on Pet yeah. Cemetery and thank you. So excited! I'm seeing it this weekend, so I'm excited. <laughs> That's great. That's great with your mom and dad and your yeah. brother and your sister and the your whole, dog and your cat. Exactly, the whole family. <laughs> whole family. Great family movie. <laughs>